Hello and welcome to the first in a brand new series of The Book Show. I'm Rick O'Shea. It is brilliant to be back with you until Christmas here on Radio 1. This is our second series since COVID-19 changed the world in March of this year and I've spent most of the last few months talking to authors and readers online. And whereas earlier in the year, lots of people told me about how hard they were finding it to concentrate on reading, that seems to be changing for a lot of people anyway. This week and every week, we're going to try to point you towards some authors and books that we think you should try. But first. Lenny Goodings joined the publishing house Virago in 1978 when, in her words, women wanted a voice, women wanted to understand their history, women wanted to see themselves on the page. As an editor, she's worked with many of the finest writers of the last half century, including Angela Carter, Maya Angelou, Marilyn Robinson and Margaret Atwood. And she joins me on the phone now. Lenny, thanks for joining us on The Book Show. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit firstly about your memoir, about A Bite of the Apple, which came out earlier this year. As an editor and as a publisher, was writing a memoir like that, was that sort of a breaking cover, if you will? (laughs) That's a very nice way of putting it. It was so hard. I mean, I really, I I suddenly realised all these years I've been sort of encouraging, cheerleading my authors. And for the first time ever, I really discovered what it was like. I discovered what the sheer stamina required to write a book. I discovered the the horrible little voices that sit on your shoulder and say, that's not very good. And I, um, I also discovered what it's like to finish it and hand it to a publisher and there's your baby and then they walk away with it and put a different a jacket on it or whatever so it's been a really good lesson for me yes but i enjoyed it ultimately i like that in chapter 12 of your memoir it's titled does any other successful publisher get asked constantly if they're still necessary and that of course is not the sort of question i would ask of you uh, however it is probably one that you've heard uh, over the years is virago's mission different now than it would have been 30 years ago given the nature of the amount of brilliant women that are being published the thing is on the whole, women have not had a hard time getting published. I don't think that's ever been true, and I don't necessarily think it's true now. I mean, everybody finds it difficult to get published. What I'm trying to call attention to, and what Virago was doing right from the beginning to, is call attention to the reception and to what happens when you put a woman's name on the spine of a book, what the perception of that is. Is the perception that it's limited, that it's niche publishing, um, I, I've recently been thinking about the fact that we we say not when we say novelist, we usually mean male novelist because if anything else we say, we we preface it by woman novelist, um, black novelist, gay novelist, whatever. And I, I actually think one of the jobs that Virago and the and the Women's Prize for Fiction do is we call attention to that sort of unconscious bias. We say, look, this is by a woman. Let's think about what it's saying from a woman's perspective. Let us think that it could be as universal and not and as unlimiting as any novelist by any man. And I don't think we're really there yet. One of the things I think is, you know, do do we think that the novel is the is the woman's form, so therefore do is it denigrated because it's mainly a woman's form. But the other thing I really call attention to, and I think publishers really have to answer for this, what coverage do we put on novels by women? And um, love, um, Naomi Alderman had this wonderful line. She said, just because I'm a woman, just because I have a vagina, doesn't mean I have to have a flower on my cover. And I thought that was great. And I think publishers do need to own up to that. I think there is a bit of pink for girls and blue for boys. And that's not okay. 
part of the conversation as well is about how men aren't such great consumers of fiction of one form or another. I mean, you have, you have thoughts on that as well. Yes, it is absolutely true that women read more fiction than men do. Um, and I don't really know the exact reason for that. Is there an idea that um, sometimes that you don't find truth in a novel? You know, that you find truth in nonfiction? I don't think that is true. I mean, it's a different kind of truth, but it's a more of an empathetic truth, probably. Um, when I point out to men, who I mean, not all men fall into this category. Of course, I wouldn't be as um, so sweeping as that. But often when I point out to men who do read fiction, that they probably haven't read very many women. They're shocked, you know. So that's a, a kind of, it's an unconscious bias that I'm trying to call out. I'm, I'm loving that um, someone like Anne Enright um, who has a lovely line saying, there's a difference between a culture that tilts male and a culture that does not see what it's doing. And that is, I think, what Virago and the feminist presses have been doing, showing the culture what it is doing. And she's making a good point there. And and I go on to talk about how the number of times I've sat beside people like Margaret Atwood and Marilyn Robinson, I'm sure Anne Enright said the same thing, and people get in the queue to get their books signed. And when a man comes up to the front, he invariably says, it's not for me, it's for my wife, <laughs> or for my girlfriend who likes fiction, or for my mother, whatever. It's a sort of, it, it's a curious thing, and I, I'm, it feels insulting to the writer. It would be remiss of me not to talk maybe a little bit further about Margaret Atwood because you're a proud Canadian as well. Mm-hmm. I am a proud Canadian. And I'm, I'm actually in Canada in quarantine right now. Um, well, I first studied Margaret Atwood when I was in high school, actually. When I was about 14, I found her first collection of poetry and I thought, oh my God, this is a wonderful thing. And it was sort of at the beginning in this country, in Canada, of what we came to call Canadian literature, because up until that point, we had a quite a, um, you know, we read British literature, we read American literature, and Canada was still finding its own sort of cultural tone. And I remember being so excited to find Margaret Atwood. The Animals in That Country was the collection of poetry. And then when I came to England, suddenly there she was in the office, <laughs> um, looking to me, I was doing publicity in those days, looking to me to take her around the country. And I was pretty floored, it has to be said. She's, um, she was a giant. She is a giant in my mind, even though she's actually only five foot something. And, um, but she's funny and very DIY, and we trotted up and down the country together, carrying loads of books and carrying um, dump bins, etc., with us. And she's been very supportive. As you know, she's given me a nice quote from my book which I think is very funny, calling it delicious like an apple. <laughs> just perhaps briefly to go back into the into the history of Virago just for a minute. It's hard to believe, but Maya Angelou, who was well known in the United States at the time, had never been published on this side of the Atlantic prior to Virago publishing her. I know. You see, that is such an example of what the women's presses did because they, they sought out um, all the women's presses, not just Virago, you know, they broadened their reach and they sought out, especially in nonfiction, topics that people formerly had thought were not very interesting. So Maya Angelou was published in 1969 in America and was very successful. And nobody in Britain picked up her book. And Ursula Owen um, was the editor at the time. She, f- she found the book and read it. And then Maya Angelou came over to see us and she said she was told that her book had been sent to British publishers and they all said nobody here is interested in the story of a young black girl growing up in America. Well, so that was 1984, 15 years after she was a 
hit in America. And we were just blown away by her, as as was all of Britain. We took her all around the country, and it was like, I would say it was like sort of rain falling on dry land. People just thirsted for her, and with her message, which is we are more alike than unlike, and with her great sort of joie de vivre and her sexiness, she was um, she was a, an unbelievable force. I, I really miss her, I must say. Just perhaps before we finish, it would be remiss of me not to maybe ask you how you feel about publishing in, in 2020, given where everybody is now, given the nature of what's happened over the course of this year, and, and maybe where the future lies, not just for, for Virago, but for publishers everywhere. Thank you for asking that, because I, what I've been thinking a lot about is how publishing changes. And it seems to me that publishing, even if it wants to change internally, the status quo does seem to stick and what changes is social movements from the outside. So feminism changed publishing. And Black Lives Matter is now going to change publishing. And the reason being is it's the social movements are actually readers, aren't they? They're also writers. And they demand that the institutions get changed. And in the industry, it's going to be changed forever by things like Black Lives Matter, just the way feminism changed it earlier. Lenny Goodings, it has been genuinely a joy talking to you. Thanks for talking to us on The Book Show. Thank you. Lenny Goodings' memoir, A Bite of the Apple, is published by Oxford University Press. She'll be in conversation with the fantastic Hilary Copeland as part of the Belfast International Arts Festival on October 31st. It's a free online event. For more information, you can check out belfastinternationalartsfestival.com. Now, I'm joined by Stephanie Preisner, who has some news in brief, as it were, this week. OK, let's get the obligatory Paul Meskel uh, mention out of the way. Not that I'm saying there's anything wrong with talking about Paul Meskel. It is getting a bit tiresome, though, isn't it? I'm, I'm still, I'm still on, I'm still on board, and I'm still happy. I don't know. I'm sliding down that slide, but anyway, right? He's finished his two-week quarantine, right? He's in Greece, and he's pretending that he's in Italy because he's shooting *The Lost Daughter*, which is an adaptation of the Elena Ferrante novel. I am currently struggling through her next book, which is currently out called *The Lying Life of Adults*, and I don't know if it's her book or the fact that it's. A translation because she writes in Italian and I do sometimes find that translations are difficult to stay with. Well maybe if like me you're struggling to concentrate on reading maybe writing is more of your thing and if it is there's a short story competition that I want to mention right so hashtag murky that's m-e-r-k-y the hashtag murky books new writers prize is open until the 30th of October which is a Friday. If you are 16 years of age up to 30 years of age and are a writer who is currently resident in Ireland or the UK if you win you will receive a publishing contract with Murky Books and also the long-listed writers will be invited to their writers camp which I presume is going to be online this year but anyway if you want more information on that you can find it on penguin.co.uk and finally we're going to finish off with uh, your chance to go to a swanky award ceremony by yourself while you're sitting at home at 11 o'clock on a Thursday morning it's the award ceremony for the International Dublin Literary Award yes and it is free but it is ticketed so you should book in advance it's on Thursday the 22nd of October at 11am and you get to find out in real time who the winner of the 100,000 euro award is so go to ilfdublin.com and register do you have any idea who's hosting it this year, Rick? I have no idea, but I hear he's very good at it and he's incredibly handsome in front of camera. I, that's all I've been told. 
It's you, isn't it? Are you going to be dressed from the waist up only? Uh, no, unfortunately, I've been told that the, it's definitely a full, including shoes, uh, dress-up event. So I'm going to have to, to, to figure that one out as I get there. Stephanie. Oh, that's an awful lot of effort. If you're listening and you don't want to wear shoes, you don't have to wear shoes to attend. Stephanie, thanks a million. We'll talk again next week. No problem. Have a great week, Rick. And staying with things that are newsworthy, last weekend something most unusual took place at the Drummondair Nina Literary Festival. There were actual people in an actual audience. Had Dublin not already been at level three, I would have been there myself. But somebody who was there is novelist, poet and lecturer Elaine Feeney. Elaine, I'm very jealous. I know, but we missed you, Rick. I find that hard to believe. <laughs> T- tell me, uh, w- w- what was it, it, it like? Was it was it weird? Was it strange? Was it exciting? Because you know, for all of us, it's been a very long time since we've done what we do in front of a room full of people. Absolutely. Look at it. it was weird, exciting, and strange. You know, I felt a bit weird going down in the car. I was a bit nervous about it, but it was absolutely fabulous. You know, it was very much that kind of lights, camera, action in the theatre so it was great and it was lovely to be there and it was lovely to be in front of a live audience now they were all in their own pods so it was just four to each little group and I could see them all masked so that was quite strange as well I presume given that I've spoken to a couple of people who have done these that obviously there's none of that other stuff that goes around being at a festival so there's no book signing afterwards you don't get to mingle with people or, or, or you know spend any social time with your fellow authors which is you know that's a that's a huge downside well, that's exactly it. We were leaving the theatre. We'd gone out a different door that we came in. Um, we were going back up the town of Nina and I was looking longingly at some of the bars. <laughs> but I went to bed. I was a good girl. But, you know, you do miss that. And that's where all the, the crack happens in the business, you well, know. But but it was still lovely and, and fair play to them for going ahead with it. Well, look, you spoke to a few people down there. Let's take a listen. Hi, I'm Alice Lyons and I've just finished uh, a reading and it is one of the first live events that I've done since March 12th when my book came out and it's just been so gratifying to see real human beings in the audience at a social distance and it just feels kind of rehumanizing. Can't think of a place I'd more rather be right now. First time live in the flesh uh, this year really and it's been an absolute tonic. After six months of sitting in front of a computer screen, to sit in a room safely and socially distant with real live human beings, uh, to listen to writers, the Drummondair Nina Literary Festival can be declared an utter success, both in terms of the inspiration of its content and the safety of its delivery. It's been a blast. So that was Alice Lyons, Alan McMonagall and Sarah Moore Fitzgerald uh, who were all there at the festival with you. There's a strangeness now given where we are this weekend that that might be the only live book event that you'll attend this year or potentially for many months afterwards. Seems like it doesn't it Rick, you know Ray and I were driving away and Ray joked that that was our last holiday to Nina. (laughs) Elaine Feeney thanks a million for talking to us on the book show. Now, for the first time this series, it's time for a book group to put questions to an author whose work they've discussed recently at one of their meetings, be it on Zoom or in person. We're going to head to County Clare. Our book club, Read Between the Wines, celebrates its 10th anniversary this year. The club was established through a shared interest in good books, great company and the appreciation of the odd glass of wine, as our name might suggest. It is as much a chance for friends to get together as it is an occasion to explore the work of authors we may never have read if left to our own devices. 
We are eight in number from Bonratti, Newmarket and Fergus, Drumline and Deer Park, who gather every five weeks or so in our favourite spot, Bonratti Manor, or on Zoom. We come from a wide variety of backgrounds, but we share long-lasting friendship and the deep love of a good book. And this week's book is Strange Flowers, the sixth novel from Tipperary native and Limerick resident Donal Ryan, who joins me now. Donal, how are you? Hi, Rick. How are you doing? I'm great. There's uh, there's definitely a monster motif to the show this week. Before we talk to you, we're going to get down to business. The first question from the wonderfully named Read Between the Wines book club in Bunratty is from Triona Marin O'Grady. Donal, a question around your ear for language, turn of phrase, and the musicality and accuracy of your dialogue and the place, the time and the people it belongs to. Why is it so important for you to excel in that regard? And did the dialogue in Strange Flowers between Alexander's family of Caribbean origin living in Notting Hill pose a particular challenge? Thanks, Joanna. Um, and that's a great question. Um, and, you know, I always feel um, a little bit undeserving of any kind of praise when it comes to an accurate demati, when it comes to my own heartland of North Tipperary, at least, or Limerick City or West Limerick, because, you know, it's where I was born and reared and it just required having an ability to write down what I heard my whole life and that's basically it um, and I guess when I stray farther from from my my home place it gets a bit more tricky um, but I was still confident enough about um, a, a Caribbean accent um, from a person of a person living in in, in London um, a second generation immigrant but I did do a lot of reading you know books like um, Mother Country um, edited by Charlie Brinkhurst Cuff which is a series of essays by children of Windrush immigrants um, and books like Sam Sevlon's The Housing Lark and The Lonely Londoners. And I also drew on my own experience of London. So I was happy enough. Um, but I've discussed before how the book was put through um, what's called a sensitivity read. And actually, the sensitivity reader um, kind of upped, up, upped the uh, demotic a little bit when it came to the Elmwoods and Alexander and his parents. I, I used a very, very light um, Caribbean patois in the book. And I kind of I was happy with that because I didn't want to to kind of get into the territory of, of mimicking people because, you know, it's, it being mimicked is a horrible feeling. And very often when you write an accent or, or actually try to write a demotic in words on paper, it, it can feel that way, um, as though you're just taking somebody off, basically. And it's very easy to veer into pastiche or caricature um, and I was so I was so worried about that I love the idea that your sensitivity reader asked you to be slightly more uh, in terms of the, the, the dialogue <laughs> for the for the Caribbean origin family and um, the next question comes from Paula Enright Donal I feel Paddy and Kit were very evocative of rural tenants of the 1970s particularly Paddy lovely foolish Paddy Kit says always doing his damnedest to ease the way of others. How did you then decide to bring a black man to rural Tipperary? And did you feel confident writing from the point of view of a black man? I ask you this as a white mother of two teenage black sons. And I wonder, do you think we can ever truly understand being other without experiencing it? First hand. Thanks, Paula. That's a great question. Um, and the answer is no. Of course, we uh, we never can truly understand being other without experiencing that first hand. You know, you can tr- you can you can get to a point where your instinct tells you, "I'm getting this fairly right," or your gut, you know, your gut reaction to what you've written or what you've created 
tells you that it's okay um, and you're basing it on some attempt at understanding and some level of experience um, but you know there's no way I can know for absolutely sure what it's like to be anybody else I don't know exactly what it's like to be my children or my wife or my parents or anything else I only I only know what was inside myself and even that can be mysterious enough at times in fairness so when you're creating a fictional character it doesn't matter what their background is or how they speak or what experience of life you would to them you know you're you're engaged in a series of guesses some of which are more informed than others um and so you know the act of writing a fictional character is an act of extending your empathy almost beyond its natural limits and so but when it came to alexander um i did i mean as i wrote i felt completely confident because alexander came to my imagination fully formed um the fact that the character of mal gladney leaves Tipperary and goes to london it's very likely she's going to meet people from Alexander's background, um, especially, you know, working in hotels and working in the parts of London she's in. Um, and for her to befriend Alexander seems natural to me. And also, very importantly, the kind of people that the Elmwoods are, um, they, they chime very closely with the kinds of people that Paddy and Kate Ledney are. And I wanted that to be really apparent, that these are prayerful, faithful, decent people. Um, and they're so-called working class people, they're working people. Um, and it, they're, they're obvious differences are facile and would dissolve away very, very quickly. Um, and there's actually a scene in the book where the Elmwood family from Notting Hill in London and the Gladney family from Nakagoni in Tipperary meet in a hotel in County Offaly. And I actually kind of regret that I didn't extend that scene a little bit, that I, I held back a little bit on the conversation because they have a very sharp but very profound conversation. And still it seems a little bit throwaway in the book. I'm sorry that I didn't go farther there and, and let it roll on a little bit and let them you know, really, really have this involved interaction. The third question from Bonratti then comes from Marie Brennan. How do you find teaching impacts on your writing, if at all? And is modern writing becoming more laid back due to the use of, say, mobile speak or the communication style of this era? And in addition, are there differing styles now? And how does the constant evolution of language affect you as a writer? That's a great question. Um, and just to take teaching first, um, it allows me time and space. It's such a gift to get paid to do this. It, it allows me time and space to deconstruct the whole act of writing and to think about it deeply. And think about it kind of in academic terms, but never esoteric terms. You know, it just it, it, it's a kind of democratizing of, of the act of writing when you just share it with so many people in a room at one time. And it's just so enjoyable. Thank God for it. Um, and also, you know, the fact that I work on a master's program in UL means that I've had to be very much more um, disciplined about when I write and how I write. So I've tried to, I've tried to compress my writing life into breaks in the term and into the summer months, the Christmas months. And it's actually fine. You know, I've, I've really struck on a rhythm in the last four or five years where the actual time that I allot to writing is much more laid out um, in, in strict terms and it's not just something that I might do tomorrow or I might do the weekend or I might do after work today. I know what I have to do and how much time I have to do it. When it comes to language, I think that language actually is, is under siege a little bit from the, the necessary compression of social media. You know, the way we're trying to shove things down into small little bite-sized chunks of, of expression. I always think of Picasso on art saying that you need to learn the rules like a pro so you can break them like an artist. And Joyce saying something similar about punctuation. I mean, when you think of Molly Bloom's soliloquy having, I think, two full stops in one comma in that whole thing, it's just incredible. Um, but you do, that's, it's so important that you need to learn the rules of grammar and syntax. You need to know what constitutes an actual sentence. 
before you can decide to write in fragments or to discard your commas and exclamation marks and all these these rules and these punctuation points that we need, to, you know, to make ourselves discernible, to make ourselves understood. I'll be honest with you, you're making me think not for the first time that I'd love to be on your master's course. Right, we're going to finish off with the final question. This is a far more general one and it's from Carmel Casey. Hi, Donald. When I read your short stories, I wonder how you decide they will become short stories and not novels. In your collection, A Slanting of the Sun, there seems to be enough in each story in which to base a novel. And I wonder, with this wealth of ideas, how you decide the form each will take, story or novel. Thanks, Carmel. And actually, yeah, no, this is an awful answer. But the answer to that is really I don't know, because I wrote most of my short stories for that collection in a kind of um, a panic. I was up against a deadline and I was way behind. And I was thinking to myself at one stage, I'll never do it because I found short stories to be far more intense than that much of a novel. 3,000 words of a novel seemed, you know, to be a kind of a, an easy and yielding and accommodating place. But 3,000 words of a short story, you need to have it all there. You have to have the three acts of the story there. It's far more intense. And I was really suffering from that. That was really, you know, and I hate to talk about suffering when it comes to writing because I enjoyed it so much. But those stories were very hard. And actually, I think I think um, I didn't give too much thought to exactly what form that the idea should take. You know, it just seems to me that I was sitting down and I had to really let myself just drift away and decide into almost a kind of um, a trance-like state so that ideas would just come to me. Um, and I was literally praying for ideas to come to me from the ether. And they did, thank God. Um, and I got through the, the collection. But I've been kind of reluctant to ever go at a collection of short stories again because the whole process it was a novel length book but the intensity of the experience of writing it was 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 just far higher than novels um so what you're saying is you needed ideas and you just prayed for them and they turned up (laughs) other other authors don't are not going to be happy with that at all listen thanks a million for taking the time out to talk to us today cheers my pleasure thanks Rick. Strange Flowers by Donal Ryan is one of my books of 2020 and it's out now on Double Day. Thanks to the Read Between the Wines book club in Clare for the questions. And if you'd like to volunteer your book group to take part in a future episode, you can drop us a line to bookshow at rte.ie. And that's it for this week's book show on RTE Radio 1. The podcast is available wherever you find yours and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BookshowRTE. This coming Wednesday night, I'll be talking to author of The Wall and Capital, John Lanchester, on YouTube as part of my Shelf Analysis series. It's live at 8pm on Wednesday. Just search for Shelf Analysis in YouTube. And don't worry if you can't watch live, you can catch it later in the week on RTE Culture. I'll talk to you again next week. As ever, don't forget to check with your local bookshop for any of the books featured on the programme.